to All Else Equal, a podcast connecting Notre Dame students to expert faculty. Forrest, who's asking our question today? Today's question comes from former student Grace Campanile. Hello, Professor Reed, Professor Smith. This is Grace, and I just recently graduated from Matthew's past I'm calling to ask how the pandemic has affected consumer behavior and more specifically, what ramifications this will have on the role of marketing and business. Thanks. Let's talk to both Mitch Olson and Emily Garbinski. So both are assisting professors of marketing here at Notre Dame. Emily's research focuses on consumer behavior, and Mitch has looked into marketing segmentation and brand awareness. Great. Uh, let's call up both Mitch and Emily. So we just want to thank Mitch and Emily for being here. Hey, how you guys doing? Good. Great. How are you? Yeah, we're doing good. Good. Yeah. We have a, we have a great question for you. I thought we'd kick it off with, uh, what has been the most surprising thing for you all in terms of consumer behavior or firm marketing during this crisis? Emily, why don't you, why don't you give us your thoughts first? Sure. So um, in terms of consumer behavior, uh, something that was very surprising to me was just how quickly consumer attitudes towards the pandemic changed. Um, so I don't know if others have had this experience, but at least for me, it felt like people went from thinking the pandemic was not a very big deal to almost overnight uh, the next day freaking out and buying toilet paper and all of these other goods that they thought they would need. Um, so I think the velocity um, with which attitudes changed is something that was personally very surprising to me at the start of the pandemic. And now that this has been going on for some time, something that continues to surprise me is the degree of variance in consumer attitudes towards acceptable behaviors. So as we've seen, some people think it's okay and perfectly acceptable to behave as if we're back to normal, whereas other people are still trying to avoid human contact as much as possible. So it's really difficult to gauge where people fall on this spectrum, and I've just been surprised at the amount of variance that I personally have experienced. Yeah, I feel like there's some fatigue with the pandemic, some, and I think that's like really interesting to, to think that it's so idiosyncratic. And it could even be, you know, geographically located as well. But Mitch, what do you, what do you think? What is, uh, what was most surprising for you? For me, first, I think it's important to recognize that we are all consumers. And although we've gone through this very dramatic event and we're still experiencing it together, we're still the same consumers that we were back in February. I mean, after all our fundamental wants, needs, and general behaviors, remain largely the same. However, both we as consumers and the firms that are marketing to us, we've essentially experienced time travel into the future. And the reason I say that is when you look at the trends that were already occurring before the pandemic, in a matter of really three months, we have accelerated down those paths to a point that would have otherwise taken us, according to many estimates, about three years to get to. And just consider some of the trends that were already occurring before the virus arrived and how they have accelerated since uh, it came ashore. Number one, more consumers are shifting to digital channels. That was something that was happening before February, before March. Um, and brick and mortar stores, they were already utilizing their own stores as fulfillment centers for their e-commerce operations and thereby blending that digital and physical worlds of commerce. 
And we've known this for quite a while, but just look at the scale of digital presence in the overall economy. Before this year, the overall share of retail sales in the U.S. was around 10%, depending on how you define retail spending in the U.S. And then in the U.S. supermarket industry, that share was pretty low. It was around 2 to 4% overall. However, in about three months, that has accelerated dramatically. If you look at, for example, Kroger and Walmart, they doubled their digital sales versus a year ago in just a couple of months. And then Target, they tripled their digital sales versus a year ago. And so now, according to their last quarterly earnings call, they said that their digital sales now account for 17% of overall revenue. I mean, so that's one, uh, more shopping and digital channels. But then the other one is what was happening from a brick and mortar store perspective. We already knew before March that the U.S. compared to all other industrialized nations was incredibly overstored. We had much more, and we still do, have much more brick and mortar retail square footage per capita. And there are a number of different retail business models that were, for lack of a better description, really limping along. Um, but we knew their, their future wasn't looking bright. And in this amount of time, the bankruptcies that were likely going to occur anyway, maybe it was going to take two years from now, they have now occurred in this matter of months. So just since the pandemic started, Lord & Taylor, JCPenney, Steinmart, for example, have all declared uh, bankruptcy. So I'm, I'm really most surprised, I guess, long answer, but most surprised by the fact that we've all experienced time travel and we're seeing what the world would have been like a few years from now. Yeah, I uh, anecdotally, I going to the supermarket, I used to have to elbow old ladies to get the best produce. Now I'm elbowing shipped individuals, people who are buying for other people. Uh, and I think that was uh, just seeing that drastic change over this time period, kind of now that you outline it, is, uh, is really kind of meteoric, that rise. So well, I've got a follow-up question for Mitch in regards to like produce. So Mitch, you've done a bunch of stuff with like green products, natural products. Is that trend accelerating with firms in terms of their branding towards these things or have firms like pivoted to something else uh, during the pandemic? In terms of natural and quote unquote green products specifically, I've seen reports from IRI and Nielsen, for instance, that show that those sales have gone up considerably during this time. Now, granted, why those sales are going up, I think, is a, a matter of debate. We know that out-of-stocks in many different categories have gone up dramatically during this time. And so it makes you wonder, well, while natural products and natural brand sales have increased dramatically, is that only because those are the only products left on the shelf? And I've seen some social media pictures where the entire shelf is picked over except for the natural cleaner, for example. And, and there's research that shows that generally in some categories, especially where efficacy is very critical, we as consumers tend to assume that the natural or the green option is gonna be less effective. Now, while that may have been the impetus for the initial trial of these products, what we're finding is, well, some of those purchases are rather sticky. Uh, people, they, they try this and maybe they were forced to try it, but now they realize this is actually a pretty effective cleaner and then it's meeting their needs for more of a sustainable product as well. And so I think there is gonna be increased loyalty 
for some of these products, but it remains to be seen exactly what that's going to look like, I think, out once we get through the, this period of inventory pressure. Yeah, uh, I, I'm really curious in general, though, how, how people's perceptions of buying have changed throughout the pandemic. And, you know, Emily's done some research on this idea of meaningfulness versus happiness. And I, I'm wondering is how do these pursuits really change during the pandemic? So yes, so I have done work on pursuits of meaningfulness uh, versus happiness. And something that I've noticed during the pandemic is that we see this common trend, trend amongst consumers that they say they're feeling totally out of control, right? Totally overwhelmed with everything that's going on in the world. And so I think in a lot of these buying patterns that we see, we see that consumers are looking to sort of fill this void and feel better about themselves. And so if you look at buying patterns that we've noted, that we've noticed, um, we see increase in purchases like for things like alcohol, right? Alcohol per consumption has gone through the roof. Also in terms of things like comfort food. So I know for myself, when the pandemic started, one of my first thoughts was, where's my fettuccine Alfredo, which is my go-to <laughs> comfort food. And for other people, this could look like something different. So we've also seen people run out and purchase things like exercise equipment, right? So a lot of people use exercise uh, as a form or a way to maintain happiness or reassert control in their own lives. Um, and so when we think of things like happiness, we see these shifts not only in material products that people are spending their money on, but also on the types of experiences that people are pursuing. So more specifically, when we think about happiness, we know that young people tend to associate happiness with extraordinary experiences, whereas older people uh, are more likely to find happiness in these ordinary experiences. And something that's been really challenging throughout the pandemic is that uh, these extraordinary things, so things like traveling to an exotic place or even things like going to a musical or going to a show. Um, I know I had tickets to see Trevor Noah, so I was really excited about that extraordinary experience. And all of these experiences got canceled. <laughs> and so uh, as consumers or as young consumers, we're looking for ways to make ordinary experiences seem more extraordinary. And so as one example, I'm having a few friends over this weekend to watch a movie, and you would think that um, in ordinary times, you know, watching, having a few friends over to watch a movie is an ordinary experience. And so I found myself thinking, how do I make this feel more extraordinary? And so one of my friends actually bought a projector. And so we're going to sit outside and project the movie uh, on my garage door and make it seem like our own mini drive-in. Um, so taking an experience that in normal times would be something very ordinary and thinking about how we can make it seem more extraordinary and thus derive greater happiness from that same experience. Yeah. So during the pandemic, uh, Hamilton hit Disney plus and under any other circumstance, I wouldn't consider watching Hamilton on TV being extraordinary, but my wife and I were able to sit down and, and watch that. And it really was kind of this extraordinary experience where we were seeing Broadway play right in the middle of our living room. And so that, that, that whole idea really resonates with trying to transform these ordinary experiences into extraordinary ones. 
So along the lines of how we experience anything, it could be from like, you know, watching a movie on a projector or it could be like something kind of much more big scale, like this sort of pandemic and the impact it's had on all of us. And you've also done some work on like how our perceptions are shaped from experiences. Like, do you have any sort of like thoughts on, you know, how are we going to look, look back on this experience that we're going through right now? Yes. So um, there is some classic work in social psychology that focuses on what we call primacy effects and recency effects. And so what this work has done uh, was originally in terms of memory and asking people to memorize lists of words. And so what they found is that people are more likely to remember words at the beginning of the list and at the end of the list. And so what this means is that So this has been extended to experiences. And so what we know for experiences is that when we experience something, the beginning of the experience and the end of the experience are things that we're more likely to remember and things that are more likely to impact our overall evaluation of that experience. And so when we think about the pandemic or when we're reflecting upon the pandemic, things that we're going to remember are we're going to remember primacy, so how it began, where were we when the pandemic first started. Um, So I'm always going to remember that I woke up one morning packing for my drive to Pittsburgh for spring break, getting an email from Notre Dame that the campus was shutting down. And and I uh, feel for me that that was the beginning of the pandemic. That was when I, I really felt that this was something much more serious than I originally thought it was. So I'm always going to remember the beginning of this experience. And in terms of the end of this experience, if we think about the end game as being the availability of a vaccine, how that's going to look like or how we're going to experience that is also going to be one of the things we remember about this pandemic. So is the vaccine going to be widely available? What's going to be the price of the vaccine? How is it going to be uh, manufactured and distributed to consumers? So the way in which the country handles this is obviously going to have a very large effect on our recollection of the pandemic from years to come. Is the velocity with which like all of this stuff has happened, is that going to make, is that going to make these like memories or like this experience more or less impactful? So like both you and Mitch sort of said, look, you know, things happen really quickly, whether it was consumer attitudes or it was like disruptions in like brick and mortar versus online retail. I'm just sort of thinking about, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, when we look back from this, are we going to be like any more or less prepared for like the next pandemic? And I'm not expecting you to have an answer to that particular question, like the last piece, but I just wonder if like the sort of the, the immediacy or the velocity with which this stuff has happened, is that if that's going to make a, like a more lasting impression on us? Am I going to like hoard toilet paper for the next 30 years and, or not? <laughs> This is actually something that several of my family members asked me when the pandemic first started. Is there any uh, important questions? That's what we're here for. <laughs> uh, so I had a few of them say things like, oh my gosh, are we going to experience a pandemic every couple of years now? Should I be starting to buy toilet paper now for, the, for future pandemics? And so I think I'm a bit more optimistic than than some people in the sense that I hope that the United States will learn from their response to the pandemic so that we can be better prepared in the future. Uh, And I'm optimistic that we won't experience things to the same degree that we've experienced them now. So 
I'm optimistic that we will be better prepared in the future. So maybe could I adjust the question a little bit for Mitch? Oh yeah, um, I was gonna add on that though, if I could. Yeah, because I think. Oh yeah. I think when we look back at this time, we're all going to think that we navigated this much better than we actually did. Currently, I think we're all experiencing the the uncertainty um, that we are going through right now and wondering where things are going to lead, what's best for ourselves, what's best for our family right now. And because we have all this uncertainty, it's a much more stressful time uh, to be living it in the moment. However, in the future, when we look back with the benefit of that hindsight and the certainty of where things actually ended up, we will look back and understand that we knew it was all going to be fine as we went through this. You know, we knew how to handle it and we did it the right way. And so I think we will give ourselves all a much better score during this time in the future than maybe we'd give ourselves right now. Does that mean people are going to like start buying Corona again, like quickly? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a question I have is, right, how does this primacy and recency uh, ideas affect kind of brand images about like Charmin, because uh, we talk about toilet paper, then Corona, because obviously the, the name correlation. Or just like the general impact yeah, of the yeah, pandemic yeah, on right. like the lasting images of these different yeah, brands. Yeah, exactly. And of course, Charmin and Corona are in two categories that are really at the center of this pandemic, but in different ways. Essentials. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yep. And, and Corona, of course, uh, very unfortunately named right now. Personally, if I had to make a prediction, I hate to make predictions, but I'm, I'm giving the average consumer the, the benefit here that they'd be able to make that separation. Of course, you see some people perhaps even buying it in an ironic sense uh, to have it right now, but most people are going to be able to make that distinction. So I, I don't think this is going to be long-term negative on Corona. Now, for the larger beer category in general, I think a bigger question has to do with the shift between on-premise versus off-premise sales. Overall, we know that drinking consumption has gone up across the U.S. as people have hunkered down. However, this is also ironically during this time, it's been very difficult for a lot of craft breweries. And you would think with drinking rates going up, this would be great for craft breweries. However, if the majority of their sales are at their tap room, that's closed or people are afraid to visit or they're at bars that are also either closed or experiencing lower, uh, lower attendance levels, it's a difficult time. But if you're a brewery that's working with a distributor that has many off-premise sales, so think supermarkets, for example, then you're in a really good position to disproportionately win and grab share during this time. So if you're ne on the negative side of this, are you going to be able to bridge yourself uh, over to the other side, essentially? And then when it comes to paper products, what we're seeing there is a number of strategies, both at the manufacturer and the retailer level, that I think have implications for the larger store, um, so across many different categories. Obviously, there's very limited paper production capacity in any country, and especially the US. And part of that has to do with the fact that these paper plants are enormous investments of capital, hundreds of millions of dollars. They take multiple years to build. And if you're Procter & Gamble, Georgia Pacific, or Kimberly-Clark, well, you just can't justify building new paper plants to meet short-term demand. Um, it, just, it just doesn't make sense. However, one of the ways that they are meeting the short-term increase in demand is by 
rationalizing the number of products that they make. And by producing fewer different types of products, they're able to make their lines more efficient. And I just read that by doing this, Charmin was able to increase its overall output by 25% just by reducing the number of SKUs available. And you're also seeing this across retailers. I mean, they're realizing that in toothpaste, we don't necessarily need 20 different variants of mint. In Charmin, we don't need 10 different sizes of Charmin Ultrasoft. Right now, you're winning if you just simply have this overall brand or product in stock. I was just walking through a Kroger in the Cincinnati area, and I noticed that they drastically changed their paper categories, both the assortment as well as how it's presented in store. So they were only carrying a very limited number of different items, but the shelves had essentially gone away. They were stocking this like a Costco. So they had pallets and crates just dropped there, wide aisles, and they knew that you win today simply by having it in stock and people aren't going to be so particular about exactly which SKU. And retailers seem to appreciate this, manufacturers do as well. And I think at least for the intermediate term, we're going to see this trend towards fewer options in categories in favor of logistical efficiency. I, I think that's really interesting, especially, you know, we framed this whole discussion at the beginning with this idea of velocity and how things are changing so quickly. And clearly we're seeing retailers adapt and obviously consumers adapting as well. And again, you know, this is just more of a broad, maybe rhetorical question, but I wonder how much is permanent, right? How, what these are shocks that we're seeing to this system. Uh, how much, how long do we think that that shock will last and, and kind of how long will it take to fade out that, that persistency? Yeah, that's the, billion dollar question here well this is a special episode where since we have emily and mitch on a podcast together we actually gave them a a special gift it's more of a, a mystery gift a mystery gift prior to the episode so if emily and mitch if you could open your mystery boxes first of all i just want to say that i appreciate the way that this was delivered for us not only are the contents of this box mysterious but also the arrival time of this box is a total mystery to me as well. Oh my gosh. It's a blind taste test. It's a blind it, taste test. It I is. Knew, I knew there was something liquidy in here. I texted Mitch and I, I told him <laughs> that there was something liquid. All right, so we were not able to do a blind taste test and maybe like the, as an efficient of a fashion as pre-pandemic. So this is our approximation to that. And you two have done a blind taste test before, right? Yes. Have you, seen, have you seen our blind taste test? I looked for it on the internet, and I think it had too many views, and so I just I couldn't find it. <laughs> <laughs> we, we did not put it on the internet because we, we wanted to make it special for our students, that it's info that only they can access in our class. Okay, so the previous p taste test was new Coke versus old Coke, right? That is correct. All right, this one's going to be easier. Old Coke versus Diet Coke. Oh. Emily, you ready? Yes. All right. Taste A first. All right. So you want to think of whether this is the regular Coke or Diet Coke. Okay. All right. Now, now <laughs> taste B. I'm terrible at this. Now, this isn't a trick. These actually are different drinks. They taste yeah, which which so one's good. which? Do we have any confident predictions? I'm going Diet Coke for A. I'm feeling Diet Coke on A. I'm, I'm going to say Diet Coke is B. How, what's the confidence level? Zero to ten? Four. A, a felt pretty watered down to me, consistent with the diet. So I'm going to say, 
I'm gonna say eight, eight and a half out of ten on this. I don't oh, drink. A, I don't drink a lot of pop, so. All right, so they're both regular Coke. I, I was going to say that. I was going to say they're the same. You, you, you can't lie to the consumer. Well, I mean, I guess you can. but um, This didn't go through any review board, so <laughs> we can do whatever we want. official taste test of the All Else Equal podcast. That's, that's exactly right. Well, that might be a good place to stop. I think that's it. We should thank our guests. Yeah, thank you uh, both, Emily, Mitch, so much for being here. This is so much fun. Thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having thank us. You guys. It was a lot of fun. Uh, so what grade would you give that taste test? I don't know. Uh, something lower than what Notre Dame is currently getting for the reopening. <laughs> the pandemic has really made home delivery taste tests to unsuspecting people creepy. Really? I, I, would, I would think less creepy, but maybe the pandemic has done that. I don't know. Well, that's all for this episode. We hope you enjoyed listening and we'll see you on the next episode of All Else Equal. Remember, if you're a Notre Dame student and would like to submit a question for a future episode, you can email us at allelseequalpodcast at gmail.com.